Well, hi, everyone. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. For this one, we're going all the way back to the very first day of January in 2018. It's a Boomer Boulevard show, and I hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. All right, let's go. Chester. I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon. All right, let's go. Chester is holding up nine fingers. Nine? I'm supposed to guess what that means, Chester? Oh, <laughs> it's nine degrees. As I, as I record this Sunday night on uh, January, or excuse me, December 31st, it is nine degrees in St. Louis. What's that, Chester? Minus six, it's a wind chill of minus six. Yeah, well, welcome everybody. <laughs> It's winter time. It's winter time. Yeah. The first show of 2018. How about that? This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard, everybody. Come on in. Get out of the cold. My goodness gracious. It is bitter, bitter cold out there. But we have a warm show lined up for you this week. We have a really fun episode of Dragnet that has to do with a con game. And uh, you know how I love those shows. Then we're going to follow that up with an episode of the Jack Benny Show. Very funny. Jack's on a train returning from uh, the East Coast going to Los Angeles. And then we're going to follow that up with an episode of Gunsmoke that has uh, deals with domestic issues. And I think you're going to enjoy all three of these shows. Boomer Boulevard is the program where we play old-time radio shows we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. Now, a lot of these shows we might remember from television. I remember Dragnet on television, of course, and, and I remember Jack Benny on TV, and I also remember Gunsmoke on TV. But you know what? I remember all three of these on the radio, too, although we didn't listen to them as much as we watched them. But I remember hearing them on the radio. And it's a lot of fun for us to go back and uh, re relive some of these memories. 
and uh, be reminded what entertainment was like back in the uh, very late 40s, but mostly in the 50s and even the early 60s. So grab a seat, get yourself comfortable, and come along for the ride. This is Boomer Boulevard, the first show of 2018. Well, I really am glad to have you along. It's uh, it's a cold night, but it's going to be a... Well, I really am glad to have you along, everybody. Brand new year. We're looking forward to it. And by the way, we have now instituted our weekly podcasts. So now if you subscribe to our podcast, you'll get one every week. And the way this will work is you'll get a new show like this one that we're doing Tonight, you'll get one of those every every other Sunday night, and then the following week you will get a um, copy of one of our early podcasts from like 2009, 2010. But the shows are old time radio shows, right? So it doesn't matter if the show was produced in 1952. It doesn't really much matter if you heard it in 2010 or 2018. It's still the same, and I think that. Uh, you'll kind of enjoy hearing the evolution of the shows we've done over the last 10 years or so. So I'm I'm glad to announce that. So what I want everybody to do is either go into iTunes or uh, TuneIn Radio or Stitcher, wherever you get your your, uh, podcasts, and uh, look for Boomer Boulevard and subscribe to it, and then it'll come delivered to you. We're really getting a lot of listeners, and it's very much appreciated. I've got a lot of nice feedback, too. I'll tell you one thing, though. Most of the feedback I've gotten has come directly to me, and it would help a lot, a whole lot, if you would leave a uh, comment or feedback on your, uh, well, like, for instance, on iTunes or on TuneIn, one of those because that would really boost our ratings. Right now, we've had uh, many, many thousands and thousands of listens, uh, closing in on about 20,000, I think, in the last six months or so. So that's tremendous. I love it, and I, I love getting comments from you folks. But we could even do better if we would get uh, feedback on iTunes or on Stitcher. So if you could do that for us, if you could just leave a positive comment, I can't tell you how much it would mean to me, and that would be a great way to start the year. And talking about starting the year, how about we have, as our first show from 2018, a really good episode of Dragnet. 
Well, we're going to have some fun tonight by starting off with this really great episode of Dragnet that was originally broadcast on NBC back on the 27th of October in 1953. And I love this one because it, it's about the um, Bunko Squad. Friday and Smith are assigned to the, how did they describe it in here, the Bunko Fugitive Detail. And so they are unearthing cons. And I love stories about cons and con men. And what's really good about this one is, and I can say this without giving anything away, is Friday and Smith turn the tables on the con men and end up conning them in the end. And it is a really fun story. I particularly enjoyed the uh, very beginning where <laughs> the, the fella comes into the police department and uh, has this really major concern about the way he was conned, and it ends up being something really silly. Well, you'll find out as you listen to it. It's the part about the shoe shine. <laughs> but anyway, here we go. This really is a good one. This is from 1953. October the 27th, this is Dragnet, and the name of this one is The Big Frog. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a bunco fugitive detail. An extortion ring is operating in your city. The victims are wealthy businessmen. The thieves claim they're policemen. Your job, check them out. the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, August 10th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch on a bunco fugitive detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Didion. My name's Friday. I'd spent the morning in court. It was 11.45 a.m. when I got back to room 38. Bunco division. Well, I'm telling you, you better do something about it. Getting terrible when a citizen has a thing like this happen to him. All right, Mr. Mather. If you'll take it easy, tell me what happened. I got a lot of friends in this town. I happen to know one of the councilmen real well. If you don't clean this thing up, you're going to be walking a beat out in a plum thicket. Just a minute, Mr. Mather. Here's my partner. Now, if you'll tell us what happened, maybe we can help you out. Hey, you don't need no partner. Just go out and arrest them fellas. Go get them. What's the matter here? This is Mr. Keith Mather, Joe. It's my partner, Sergeant Friday. How are you, sir? Now, don't you come around here trying to smooth things over. I'm not going to be happy until them hoodlums are in jail where they belong. I'm telling you the same as I told this fella. You do something about this, I'm going to take it to the mayor. Well, what's the matter here, Frank? I don't know. Been trying to find out? Well, what you going to do about it? How about a cigarette, huh? Thank you. Here, I have a match. There you are. How about it? Sir? Well, how about it? What you gonna do? Well, sir, if you'd start right at the beginning and tell us what this is all about, maybe we can give you a hand. 
Well, here's the shoe shine in the world that's worth $5. I don't care what kind of wax they use, not for $5, no, sir. Shoe shine? Yes. They call it imported wax, where the charge for it must be brought in from Timbuktu. Ridiculous. I'll get the report. Right. Take a match and light it, and then they burn the edges of your shoe soles. Don't do nothing but smoke up your shoes, that's all. Just smoke up your shoes, a $5 hot foot. You want to give us your full name, sir? Keith Jefferson Matter. Right down the street to threaten me. Where'd this happen, sir? Shoeshine stand the corner of Main and Cola. Little place with pinup pictures all over the walls. Never seen so many pinups. Mm-hmm. Do you know if they had a card showing the prices of the shines? Well, I didn't see one. All them pictures, hard to tell. Well, if you just tell us in your own words exactly what happened, will you please? I was on my way to work. Had a very busy day, a lot of important appointments. I just parked my car and I was walking along and went by this place. Fella stand there asked me if I wanted to shine. Just so happened I did, so I climbed up in a chair. Well, I was sitting there reading the paper, and the man asked me if I wanted imported wax. I wasn't paying a lot of attention. I guess I said yes. Next thing I know, I think he's trying to give me a hot foot. I look down. He's got this big kitchen match out. He's burning the edges of my soles. Smoke coming up. I told him to stop it. I got down from the chair. I was plenty sore. You can just bet I was sore. Plenty. Yes, sir. We can understand. Well, I handed him half a dollar. Figured that'd take care of the tip, too. Wasn't a very good shine. Come right down to it. A half dollar was too much. All that smoke... Next thing I know, he said the shine was $5. $5! Almost climbed right down top of the place. Couldn't believe my ears. Can you imagine $5 for shine? That's when the men got out of the car, did they? That's right. Them three fellas got right out. Say, how'd you know about that? Well, sir, this isn't a new operation. You mean tell me this happened before? Yes, sir. We get a couple of dozen complaints a week. We'll finish up this report, and then if you'll point out the place, we'll have a look. Then you can just start right, and I told you I had a lot of important appointments. I can't spend all day here. Can I see someone here, please? Yes, sir. You want to go ahead with this, Frank? I'll see what he wants. Yeah, sure. Yes, sir. Can I help you? I want to give myself up. Sir? This is Bunko Fugitive, isn't it? That's what it says on the door. Yes, sir. That's right. I want to give myself up. I'm tired of running. I haven't got any place to go. Would you like to tell me what this is all about? I gave him every nickel I had. I haven't even got enough money to go home. All I want's enough to eat on and get back home. I gave him everything. I don't believe I understand you, sir. I gave him all the money I had. He said it'd be all right. I'm broke, and I want to borrow enough to get home. But who are you talking about? Who'd you give the money to? Policeman. The man who'd walked into the office identified himself as Martin Dietrich. From the story he gave us, it appeared that he'd been the victim of a shakedown by a person or persons representing themselves as police officers. We turned the shoeshine parlor complaint over to one of the other officers for investigation, and then we took Dietrich across the street to the federal cafe. We sat down in a booth and ordered coffee while the victim had breakfast. He acted as if he hadn't eaten in several days. Frank and I waited until he finished, and then we started to question him. Now, uh, if you'll just tell us what happened, Dietrich. Sure. I'm from Chicago. I work for a wholesale drug company back there, and I had to come out here on business. I got in last Saturday. That'd be August 7th, would it? Yeah, yeah, the 7th. I got in 845 on the Super Chief. Well, I didn't have any business to do until yesterday, so I thought I'd look the town over, get settled, you know? Yes, sir. I didn't even have a hotel reservation, so after I got off the train, I was waiting for my baggage to be checked through, and I went over to the coffee shop for some coffee. Sat down, started to read the paper. Must have been there for about 15, 20 minutes when this guy came in sat down next to me. Go ahead. He just sat there for a couple of minutes. I didn't pay any attention to him. Busy reading the paper, you know? Mm-hmm. Then he asked me for a match. I gave him one, told him to keep the pack. I remember telling him that. Next thing I know, we're in a big conversation. Turns out he's from Chicago, too. Did he tell you his name? He said it was Gabriel Bush. Uh, told me he was in the wholesale liquor business. Said he was out here on a selling trip. Checking up on the branch office. Well, I went right along with him. Seemed like such a nice fellow. Well-dressed, cultured. You know, even knowing it, you sure wouldn't figure him for what he was. What was that, sir? A narcotic addict. You sure about that? Well, I should be. It cost me over $3,000 to find out. 
You want to go on, sir? We got a cab and went out to a big hotel on Wilshire. He had reservations there. He signed the card and we went up the room. The way he acted, you never know anything was wrong, never even suspected. I see. Well, we no sooner got in the room that Gabe started to unpack his suitcase. Gabe? Yeah, Gabriel Bush. Oh, yeah. He told me to call him Gabe. Said he was named after a great uncle or something. Didn't care much for the name. I see. Go ahead, please. Well, he unpacked his bag, and I guess I should have noticed something then, the way he acted. How do you mean? When he took the stuff out of his bag, he acted like he didn't want me to see what he was doing. But he, he did it in a funny way, so I couldn't miss noticing it. You know what I mean? I think I do, yeah. Well, he went into the bathroom, stayed in there a couple of minutes, and then when he came out, he had his sleeve rolled up, had a piece of cotton on his arm, like when they give you a transfusion. You know here? Yeah. He had this little leather case, and when he went to put it away, he dropped it. Spilled the stuff in it all over the floor. I should have gotten out right then, right there. If I'd have had any brains, I would have gotten out. What was in the case, do you know? All the stuff for taking narcotics, hypodermic needle, all that stuff. Well, what did he say when he dropped this? He just tried to laugh it off. Then he told me that he was a diabetic, said that he had to take insulin shots. About that time, the other two guys came in. What did these two men want? Said Gabe was a narcotic addict, said they'd been after him for a long time and that they'd gotten word from the Chicago police that he was coming out here. Yeah. And told me that they'd been following us since we got off the train, been following us all the time. What'd they do then? Took us downstairs and put us in the car, said they were going to take us to jail. I tried to talk to him, tell him I didn't have any part in what Gabe was doing. I didn't even know about the narcotics. One of them said they knew that. That you weren't involved in it? Yeah. Then the other one opened up the glove compartment of the car and took out a microphone, called in here to police headquarters, gave him Gabe's name and mine, said they had us in custody and were bringing us in. And I kept asking the one guy in the back with me to let me go, let me get out of the car. What'd he say? Oh, he told me that they'd like to, but it was too late, that they'd already called in my name, said they couldn't do anything about it now. I told him how it would ruin me if the story got out. How could, how could I explain it to my bosses? That's when they told me there was a way. Yeah. The one fellow said that if I could afford to take care of all the policemen who knew that I'd been picked up, maybe they could fix it. The other one, the one in the front seat, said that wasn't a good idea, that they should book me. Well, they got in a discussion about it. The one guy wanted to let me go. The other one said not to. Finally, the one with me, the one in the back seat, won out. I gave him all the money I had. $3,350. How much? $3,350. I see. Then they pulled the car over to the curb and told me to get out. The badge these two men showed you. Did it look like this one? I think so. I was so worried I didn't get a real close look at it. I think it was the same. I see. Either one of them tell you their names? Not the one in the front seat. The one who wanted to let me go said his name was Lang. He said he was a sergeant. Did he tell you where he worked? Just narcotics, that's all he said. Uh, you gave him this money all in cash, did you? Yeah, all of it. Say, do you know him? You know these two officers? No, sir, we don't. You said they were policemen, the badges, the police car, even the radio. Did you hear anyone talk back to him on that radio? I don't remember. I was so upset about what was happening, I didn't pay any attention to what was going on. All I could think about was that I was going to jail for something I didn't know anything about. No, I, I don't remember. What kind of a car was it? The Chevrolet. What color? Uh, sort of a light gray. Will you show us the hotel where all this happened? Sure, but I don't understand all this. The other two policemen said that if I gave them the money, everything would be all right. They said they could fix it up. Now, I don't want any trouble. All I want is enough money to get home. They said they'd fix the whole thing up. They told me there wouldn't be any trouble. No trouble. Yes, sir. You think they're really cops? I don't know, but they're wrong about one thing. What's that? There's going to be trouble. <laughs> 12.52 p.m. We took the victim, Martin Dietrich, back to the city hall. We got in touch with Lieutenant Ionone, Internal Affairs Division. We filled him in on what had happened. He started an immediate check of all police officers in the city and the county. Working from the description we'd gotten from the victim, we notified the narcotics detail. They went to work on it. 
A local and an APB were gotten out on the suspects. We checked the name Gabriel Bush through R&I, but when the mugshots from the packages that we came up with were shown to Dietrich, he was unable to give us an identification. 3.15 p.m., we drove the victim out to the hotel where he told us the shakedown had occurred. In the company of the manager, we went upstairs. Come right in. This is the room. How about it, Dietrich? Yeah, this is where he brought me. Mr. Alden, do you know anything about the man who took this room? You mean Mr. Bush? Yes, sir. No, I don't. I do remember when he came in, registered with this gentleman here. Had a reservation. I had the boy bring him up to the room. Yes, sir. Well, all the time Mr. Bush was signing the card, he was telling Mr. Dietrich here that there was a convention in town, how all the hotels were full up. Well, that's not right. We haven't had a really big convention in a couple of months. Why, right here in this place, we've got several rooms we could have let Mr. Dietrich have. Not that we're not doing a good business, you understand, not at all. Yes, sir. But we do have a few very nice rooms. Have you ever seen this Mr. Bush before? No, no, I don't think I ever have. All right, sir. If we could take a look at the registration card and then we'd like to talk to the cashier. Sure. Do you know if their bill was paid when they checked out? I imagine so. I don't collect the money. Cashier does that. We can ask her. All right, sir. You think you might get a clue from her? Well, we'd like to talk to her if we could. She won't be able to tell you anything that I haven't filled you in on already. Sir? Well, it follows. I'm the manager here. Anything goes on, I'm going to know about it. Not only that, but I've worked a lot with our security officer. How's that, sir? House detective. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I help him out all the time. People are always trying to get away with hotel property, but we stop them. Come right down to it, I could almost be a policeman myself. All I need is a badge and a gun. Afraid you're a little wrong there, mister. Just a badge and a gun. They don't make you a cop. Four thirty-eight p.m. We talked to the cashier at the hotel. She told us that the bill for the room had been paid by Gabriel Bush at two fifteen the afternoon of the shakedown, three hours after Martin Dietrich had turned over all his money to the thieves. She told us that the bill had been paid with cash and that she could give us no further information on the man. We obtained the registration card the suspect had signed when he checked into the hotel. In the usual processing of the card by hotel employees, it had been handled so much that lifting fingerprints from it was impossible. The card was turned over to Don Myers in handwriting to be checked. 5.20 p.m., the victim started to look through the photographs of police officers. Lieutenant Ionone's preliminary investigation had failed to turn up any police officers who matched the description of the shakedown men. A check with the officers from narcotics detail netted us nothing. They were still checking their sources of information to help us in coming up with a lead. 11.16 p.m., we took the victim out for dinner and then we came back to the city hall and continued to go through the pictures. At 1.26 a.m., he finished the last book without finding the men who'd claimed that they were police officers. We checked out of the office and Dietrich spent the night at Frank's house. The following morning, Wednesday, August 11th, 8.04 a.m., Frank and I met with Captain Didion in his office. Well, where are you on it? Not too far, Skipper. What have you got? Well, we checked the files. We're pretty sure that they aren't policemen. How about narcotics? They come up with anything? Not yet. They're still working on it. You need any extra men? No, not right now. We might later. I got Johnny DeBetta standing by. You can use anybody else you need, but clean this thing up. Where do you go from here? Well, we're getting descriptions out to all the hotels. Warning them about the racket, asking them to call us if this Bush guy registers again. Doesn't seem like he'll use the same name again. No reason not to, Skipper. He doesn't know we're on to him. I suppose so. I got an idea last night. Might work. At least it'd be something to start on. All right. Well, the figures that the only men who'll go for this dodge have got responsible positions in their hometowns. If they didn't have, they wouldn't care about being brought down here along with Bush. Is that right? Yeah, that follows. They got to be from out of town so the con men can get rid of them fast. Yeah. Now, this Dietrich, he was picked up in the Union Station, right? Yeah, that's right. And if you're going to pick your men up, that's the place to do it. Try to nail them while they're setting the mark. Yeah, it might work. Be better if one of us was the mark, though. That's what I had in mind. 
You got any good luggage, Joe? Expensive looking? Well, I got a set my mother gave me last Christmas. Looks pretty good to me. Mm, try it, then. Smith, you'll work with DeBetty. Keep a tail on Friday from the time he gets into Union Depot. Joe. Yeah. Here's a timetable. What? Tomorrow morning you start riding the train. Thursday, August 12th, I drove out to Pasadena. At 8.12 a.m., I caught the train on its last stop before it reached the Union Depot in Los Angeles. At 8.45 a.m., the train pulled into the station. I got off, walked up the ramp into the terminal. From there, I walked over to the coffee shop and waited for over an hour. From where I sat, I could see Frank and Sergeant John DeBetta further down the counter. At the end of the hour, no attempt had been made to approach me, and we called off the operation for the day. While I was in the coffee shop, I watched for anybody matching the description of the suspect, Bush. But if he was there, we didn't see him. The operation was staged again for the next two days without results. On Sunday, August 15th, I went through the same procedure. After the waitress brought my coffee, I waited. 9.02 a.m. Mind if I sit down here? No, go right ahead. Here, I'll move my coat. I'll get it for you. You're not gonna need an overcoat out here. Sure is hot. Yeah, I guess so. This is my first trip. Thought I'd bring one with me anyway. California weather, you know. Yeah, never know. Where are you from? Chicago. Want to take the chief in? Yeah. Just thought I'd have a cup of coffee before I start out to find a hotel. Yeah. Guess I had to introduce myself. I'm Gabriel Bush. Friends call me Gabe. Well, my name's Friday. Did you just get into? Yeah. yeah. I work for a wholesale liquor company in Chicago. It's a small world. Where are your offices? In State Street. Had a little trouble with our West Coast office, so the boss sent me out to see if I can straighten it out. What are you doing here? Oh, just kind of business and pleasure. Mm-hmm. What line are you in? Machine tools. Well, how long are you going to be in town? Well, as a matter of fact, I'm leaving Tuesday. That doesn't give you a lot of time here. You know anybody in town? No, sir, I don't. Not a soul. Where'd you say you're staying? Well, I'm not staying anyplace. I haven't got a place yet. Thought I'd go over to the Statler. Oh, you're not going to get in there. Matter of fact, you're going to have a rough time getting in anyplace. Oh, is that so? Yeah, there's a big convention in town. No rooms to be had. I made my reservation a couple of weeks ago. The office out here took care of it. Well, I didn't know it'd be that crowded. Sure. i tell you what. Yeah. Come on over to my hotel. You can park your luggage there, and I'll get in touch with a couple of friends here and see what they can do. Well, it's sure nice of you, but I don't want you to go to a lot of trouble. I'll find a place somewhere. It's no trouble at all. Can't let a fellow Chicagoan stand out in the cold. I'm sure the boys can find you a place. Well, you know, I sure appreciate all this. I don't think anything about it. Who knows? Maybe you'll be able to do something for me someday. Yeah, maybe I can. We walked out of the terminal, and we got into a cab. I could see Frank and DeBetta following us. The address Bush gave the cab driver was out on Wilshire. We pulled up in front of the place, we went in. The suspect signed the registration card and we went upstairs. All the time he kept up a running conversation about how difficult it was to get a hotel room. The bellboy left our bags in the room and asked us if we wanted them open. Bush made it apparent to both the boy and to me that he was the only one who was going to open his own suitcase. After the bellboy left the room, Bush laid his bag on the bed and snapped it open. He took out a small leather case, trying to keep me from seeing it, and at the same time making sure that I did. He went into the bathroom, and after about two minutes, he came out. He'd taken off his coat, and his left shirt sleeve was rolled back. He had a small piece of cotton on his arm. I feel a lot better now. What's the matter? Something wrong? Oh, no, nothing at all. You see, I'm a diabetic. I have to take insulin shots every so often. Oh, that's too bad. I'll get this back in my suitcase, and we can start looking for a room for you. Well, that's nice of you. Huh? Oh, here, let me give you a hand. I'll help you pick it up. Oh, no, it's all right. Don't worry about it. I can get it. Well, here, just a minute. I guess this spoon's part of it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I didn't know you used a spoon for insulin. 
I'll get it. Hey, wait a minute. Let me put this stuff away. Well, I'll open the door and see who it is anyway, huh? Yeah, what do you want? Police officers. You're under arrest. What for? Narcotics. What are you doing breaking in here like this? You got no right coming in a room like this. I'd knock it off, Bush. But after you for a long time, we finally nailed you, and I don't ball about it. This other fellow cop, too? Yeah, this is my partner, Roger Silby. Now, listen, I had no part in this. I just met this guy. If you want him, okay, but don't tie me in with him, please. Too bad, mister. Get your coat. Where are we going? Downtown. We got to book you. But I had no part in this. I tell you, I just met the guy just this morning down at the depot. I just met him. I'm not mixed up on anything. My company finds out about this, it's going to cost me my job. Now, you guys got to give me a break, please. Should have thought of that before, mister. A little late now. Yeah, but if my boss hears about this, he's going to kill me. Oh, come Can't on, why don't you give the guy a break? He's telling the truth. I just met him. He's got no piece of the action. That's rough. Maybe next time he'd be more careful who he bums around with. Let's go. Oh, please, give him a break. You guys are all alike. You cry when you get tagged. Yeah, but this isn't right. Let's go. We're taking you in. Well, what's the charge? We'll tell you in jail. The two men had shown us badges when they came in, but they'd flashed them by so fast there was no way of taking a good look at them. They made Bush and I get our things together, and then they took us downstairs. As we walked through the lobby, I nodded to Frank and Johnny DeBetta. They followed us at a distance. The plan was that I'd get in the car with the suspects and then give them the money. After that, they'd be taken into custody. Until they'd actually taken the money, all we could prosecute them on was a charge of impersonating an officer. Once the currency was in their possession, we could prove extortion, a felony. After we left the hotel, we walked up Wilshire Boulevard and we stopped by a gray Chevrolet. All right, get in. Is this a police car? That's right. I'll take this one in front with me. Okay. All right, get in. You're making a mistake. We'll let the judge worry about that. I'll call in and tell him we're coming in. Right. This is car 12-7, car 12-7. We have two prisoners in custody. We're taking them downtown for booking. Repeat, we have two prisoners in custody. We're taking them downtown for booking. All right, just sit back, mister. You got a long ride. What are they going to do to me? We just book you. After that, it's up to the court. Yeah, but they're going to let me go, aren't they? I don't know. They got a big drive on now about narcotics. Court's getting pretty rough. Had a guy up just last week. They caught him in a car with another fellow who was smoking marijuana. This one guy didn't even know it was tea. They really nailed him. Hey, how long did they give Jensen? You mean on that tea wrap last week? Yeah, five years. Now you see, they're really getting rough. Yeah, but you know I didn't have anything to do with this. You said that yourself. You know that. Listen, isn't there some way? There's got to be a way. I don't know. We don't like to see guys like you nailed, but the pressure's on us, too. We'd like to just let you out of the car, forget we ever saw you. We can't do it. Why not? Why can't you? Too many people know we picked you up. Well, who? Who knows it? Well, our office, for one. As soon as we spotted you and Bush at the hotel, we called them. Told them we were going to take you into custody. My partner just called in and told them we had you. People on the radio know it. Must be a couple of dozen. No, I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do. Sorry. It was a lousy deal. It was going to ruin me. You guys know that. I'll lose my job. I'll be through. I don't know. We'd like to help you out, but you can see there just isn't any way. But there's got to be. Sylvie? Yeah? How about it? Can't we just let him out? You tell me how we're going to get away with it. How are we going to explain when he isn't there to be booked? Oh, look, he's a nice guy. I don't want to see him get into trouble for something he didn't do. Neither do I, but how do you figure to square it? Well, you're bright, Cox. Come on, give the guy a break. Suppose we could take care of the watch, Commander. Maybe he'd forget we called in. Taking care of him is expensive. Yeah. How much money you got on you? Well, about $2,500. It's not too much. Can you raise any more? No, not without sending home. I can't do that. How about it, Sylvie? 2500 enough? Won't go very far. A lot of people to take care of. That's all he's got. Ain't enough. Let's book him. Oh, come on, we've been riding together a long time, Sylvie. This is the lousiest deal we've ever had to pull. 
We take the 2500 and explain it to the commander. It'll work. Come on, let's give the guy a chance. If it goes wrong, it's on your neck. All right, all right, I'll take the beef. Okay, shove him out. We've got to take Bush in, though. All right. Come on, give me the money. Sure. Here you are. It's all there. Okay. Silby? Pull over. Let's let him out. Where are we? Fourth and Spring. Would you mind dropping me off a couple of blocks up the street? This isn't a taxi service, mister. You're coming out of this smelling like a rose. Don't press your luck. Well, just a couple of blocks up there near first. Why, what's over there? City Hall. You're under arrest. The three men were taken into custody, and then the marked money was booked as evidence. We got in touch with the victim, Martin Dietrich, and asked him to come down to the City Hall and give us an identification. He looked at the suspects and then stated positively that they were the men who'd shaken him down. That's them. You'll sign a complaint? You bet I will. I want to see him get theirs. Oh, it's all a beef, little con game, that's all. So we took the mark. Shut up, Lang. They still got to prove it. That ain't going to be hard with the help your friend Gabe handed out to them. Imagine being so dumb you pick a cop as a mark. You know, both of you went along with it. Oh, you're dumb, Gabe. Face it. All right, let's go. Come on, mister. Don't give me no orders, cop. You got me in custody. That's enough. Now don't order me around. I'll go when I'm ready. Come on, Lang. You know something, cop? I think I play the part better than you do. Well, I'm going to tell you something, mister. I want you to remember it. As a con man, you're a flop. You wouldn't know a mark if he came up and hit you right in the mouth. Besides being bad at that, you're a liar. The worst kind of liar. You go around telling people that you're a cop. You flash a tin badge and write off you're the law. You don't care what you do or who you hurt. I've been in this business a long time. I've seen a lot of five tens come across the desk here. Guys who take old women, cheap crumbs with a handkerchief switch in the smack game. But at least they don't try to hide behind a phony badge. We don't know how many people you pulled this cheap deal on, but we're going to find out. We'll get every name there is, and then we'll make you on all of them. I live in this town. I work here, and I like it. There are 4,500 men in the city who feel the same way, all cops. Men are trying to prove that the law is here to protect people, not to cut them down. They spend every day of the year making up a good score, and you come along and tilt it. Every one of those people you hit thinks he's been taken by a cop now, a cop whose hand was reaching for money that wasn't his. You keep wearing that grin, Lang. See if you can still make it when we turn the key on you. Now let's go. You want to take him outside, Frank? I'll be right with you. Yeah, come on. That all you need me for? Yeah, Martin, we'll be in touch with you. Right. Too bad about all this, isn't it? Yeah. All those people that bunch took, they're always going to think those guys were real cops. Yeah, that's right. Never going to know. Of course, you can't blame them, not really. Look how they got to me. I guess there just ain't any way to tell if a guy flashes a badge and all. How are you going to tell? Yeah, there's one way. How are you going to know he's a fake? When he asks you for money. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On December 17th, trial was held in Department 92, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. Gerald Richard Lang, Richard Harris Silby, and Gabriel Norris Bush were tried and convicted of violation of Section 518 PC, extortion. They received sentences prescribed by law. Violation of Section 518 PC is punishable by imprisonment in a state penitentiary for a period of not less than one, nor more than ten years. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Perrin, Herb Ellis, Paul Richards. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking.
Watch an entirely new Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Hear Frank Sinatra as Rocky Fortune tonight on the NBC Radio Network. As originally heard on NBC back on October 27, 1953, that was Dragnet, and the name of the episode was The Big Fraud. And I love that episode. Just a lot of fun. I love the way they turn the tables on these guys. <laughs> you know, a couple things uh, struck me as, as I was listening to that. I, you know, the first thing was, why would a guy be in a strange town, uh, arrive in Los Angeles from Chicago with 3000 some odd dollars in his pocket? And then it hit me. I guess that's why they used to have traveler's checks, because... This was before credit cards, and uh, I don't know how hotels were about accepting checks back then. I used to have to travel for a living for a number of years. I worked for a company out of Los Angeles, and I, I traveled 48 states, well, technically 50 states. And during that time, I think uh, I was in, I counted it up once, I think I was in 43 of the lower 48 states uh, during my travels. But what was nice is I had a company credit card. In fact, I had, I think, three company credit cards. So I didn't even have to use my own money and then be reimbursed. I, I could just use the company money. And then they also gave me a cash advance before I went out so that I could pay for my meals and things with cash. But uh, back then, if you, back, because this was what, what did I say, 1953, if you had to go into a hotel and pay for a week's stay in a hotel. I don't know, what was a hotel room back in 1953? $30 a night maybe for a good hotel, $40 a night, maybe 50 even, for the Statler Hilton, which is, I think, where they were going to stay in downtown Los Angeles. Well, you, you would have to carry some cash, although 3000 or so still seems like, like an excessive amount. Joe Friday at the end in his little soliloquy there talks about two different con games. Do you know what I'm talking about where he said where he was telling this con off and he said, listen, I've we've had all kinds of con men here, but they don't claim to be cops. He said, we have people that do the handkerchief switch and the smack game. And I thought to myself, what in the world are those? So I looked them up. It ends up that the uh, the handkerchief switch is also sometimes called the pigeon drop, and and it can be done a lot of different ways. But if you ever saw the film The Sting, in the very beginning of the of, of the film, there's a um, a scene with Robert Earl Jones, who plays a character named Luther Coleman. By the way, Robert Earl Jones is James Earl Jones' father. Did you know that? Well, anyway, Luther Coleman and Johnny Hooker, who is played by Robert Redford, have decided to pull a con or a sting on a passerby by the name of Matola. Luther is mugged, and Matola and Johnny Hooker witness this. Now, Matola is unaware that he's being set up as the pigeon. And when they go to check on Luther, Luther asks if one of them would deliver a large sum of cash 
that he's carrying in an envelope. He explains that he's collected this cash for the mob. It's $5,000 and it has to be delivered by 4 p.m. or he is in real trouble. And he promises $100 to either one of the men who will deliver it. Well, Johnny Hooker right away declined, saying, oh, no, no, that's too dangerous. Matola, however, sees a chance to walk off with the $5,000 and accepts the envelope. Well, Hooker warns him then that it's much too dangerous to be carrying that much cash in this neighborhood. So he suggests he puts the cash along with his own cash, put it all in a handkerchief, and then stuff it down the front of his pants where no tough guy would ever look for it. And so he demonstrates that very quickly to Matola. And while he is demonstrating it, he very skillfully does a switch of the envelopes. Well, Matola flees in a taxi cab and starts laughing out loud. And when the cab driver asks him what's so funny, he says, I just made the quickest $5,000 I'll ever make. And as he pulls the envelope out, he opens it up and discovers that it is filled with tissue paper. So that, that is the classic handkerchief switch. Now, the smack game, I wasn't quite so successful in finding. I did find a number of places that described uh, what they call the smack game, and almost all of them, even though they're variations, Almost all of them have to do with uh, coin flipping. Now, here's one explanation. This was on a website called Australia's Honest Con Man, Encyclopedia of Scams. <laughs> How do you like that for a website? All right, and this one is called The Smackdown. And it says the first con artist, who we will call the Roper, strikes up a conversation with the mark or the victim and he makes sure that they discover they have something in common, like they both go to the same church or they both support the same baseball team, you know, that sort of thing. Then the second con artist, who is the inside man, just happens onto the pair and joins in their conversation. Well, after a chat, they begin to flip coins. First they do it for fun and then they start doing it for money. And the game is simple. The trio each flip a coin. Whoever has the odd coin out is the winner. Well, the roper whispers to the victim, I'll always call the opposite to you, so one of us will always win. Then at the end, we'll split the take between us. Well, the roper and the victim, or the mark, keep winning small bets from the increasingly angry inside man, until in a fit of rage, he bets everything he has on a single flip. The mark and the roper agree and join in the bet. Well, naturally, the inside man loses, and so then he storms off. Now, remember, this is one of the con men that just lost and stormed off. He gives them a couple of minutes, and then he comes back on the scene, and when he arrives back on the scene, the roper and the victim are splitting up the cash between them. Well, the inside man has a fit. He accuses them of cheating and insists that they walk off in different directions to prove that they're not in cahoots. They do that, and of course, the victim never sees his money again because 
the first con artist, the Roper, keeps the money as he walks off, and then later on, he and his partner split it. The, the name of that one is the SmackDown. These cons have been going around for years and years and years and years. And that's why they have Joe Friday and Frank Smith working on the Bunko Squad. And of course, we'll have more episodes of Dragnet in future weeks.
secret you're keeping There's an old piano and they play it hot behind the green door Don't know what they're doing but they laugh a lot behind the green door Wish they'd let me in so I could find out what's behind the green door Behind the green door When I said Joe sent me Someone laughed out loud Behind the green door All I want to do Is join the happy crowd Behind the green door you feel like laughing? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. We have an episode of Jack Benny show tonight that's going to make you laugh. And uh, I'm going to introduce it in a minute. But before I do, I just, I just want to say a couple of things. I uh, have received a note from time to time from folks asking, why don't I play other shows other than the ones we play? Because we pretty much limit our playlist to, what, maybe 15 shows or so? Uh, Three or four different detective shows, uh, three or four different comedy shows. And then, of course, we always play an episode of Gunsmoke, and we've been trying to, I'm going to start trying to work in some other westerns. Here's the thing. I I take that seriously. So every once in a while, I will go out and try to get something else. And what I was going to do this week was play an episode of The Adventures of Maisie with Ann Southern, because boomers, at least if you're my age of boomer, you remember Ann Southern from when you were a kid. She had a a show on TV called Private Secretary. She played Susie. I don't remember her last name. And then later, the show went into syndication. They called it Susie. 
Anne Southern was very, very good in it. And of course, she was an actress in the uh, 40s in movies. And The Adventures of Maisie was a B-movie that was made for a number of years. It was a well-known series, and people loved it. That was back... Do you remember B-movies? It used to be, when I was a kid, every time you went to a movie, it was a double feature. Now, it's funny to me to think about that now, because I cannot imagine sitting through two movies in a theater. But back then, if you didn't have a double feature, you felt like you were being cheated. The only shows that weren't double features at least in the L.A. area, were like the exclusive engagements that were showing up in Hollywood. Other than that, everything that played in your local neighborhood theaters was a double feature. And probably, I'm going to guess, for like 1960 or so, they started showing, uh, like if, if, if a movie came out this week and then another movie came out, say, six, eight weeks from now, they may take the new movie and pair it up with the six-week-old movie. But in the early days, prior to that, in the 50s, and I guess probably in the 40s, they literally would make B-movies, movies that were never designed to be the marquee feature. They were going to be the second film that, uh, that played with the main attraction. And that's exactly what they were. And you had a series of actors and actresses that played mostly in B-movies. And a lot of times they were black and white films. They were, you know, very cheaply done, but a lot of times they were very, very good. A lot of your film noir type movies were, were B-movies originally. Well, that's what The Adventures of Maisie was. It was a B-movie. And that's the way Maisie was. She was so popular that they put her on radio. So I thought, well, this will be fun. This will be bring up some good memories for baby boomers. And uh, we'll have a new show and satisfy some of the people that want more variety. I listened to three different episodes, and they just weren't funny, folks. They weren't funny. And I don't want to put something on just to have something different on here. When you listen to Jack Benny, you're going to laugh. Our Miss Brooks is really well-constructed, well-written. And Halls of Ivy so well-written. So that's why we kind of restrict ourselves. And I, I hope I'm not losing too much audience because of that. But I would rather have you highly entertained than just want to hear different shows all the time. So tonight's a classic example. Jack has been on the East Coast. He's coming back on the Santa Fe Railroad. I think, what is it, the Super Chief, I think, that uh, came from uh, Chicago into Los Angeles. And uh, a lot of this uh, show tonight is just dialogue between he and his, his team members there that uh, traveled with him. And uh, then we meet a couple interesting passengers along the way. A lot of this is a gin rummy game. But I think you're going to laugh. It's really, really a funny episode. So this, this is the Jack Benny Show as originally heard on February the 19th in 1950. And for lack of a better title, because they, these didn't have official titles, Jack is returning to Los Angeles on the train. And here it comes. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies 
Ladies and gentlemen, for the past two weeks, Jack Benny and his troop have been in New York. So now let's pick them up on the Super Chief en route to Los Angeles. Mary and Jack are playing a game of gin rummy. Hmm. You sure are lucky, Mary. I play better gin than you do, and yet you always win. Well, it's your own fault, Jack. You don't concentrate on the cards. I do, too. Now, let's see. I know you have three nines, three queens, and the six, seven, and eight of hearts. So I know you can't use this card. Here. Here's the deuce of spades. Gin. <laughs> Gin, let me see your hand. There you are. Three eights, four kings, and three deuces. Wait a minute. Where are those two nines you picked up? That was yesterday. <laughs> no. Well, go ahead and deal the cards again. Yeah, I never played in such bad luck in all my life. Hey, Jackson, you got a corkscrew? Here you are, Phil. Thanks. <laughs> See, I hope I have better luck with this hand than I... Pick up your cards. Okay. I hope I... Hmm. Hmm. Jack, pick up your last card. Whoops. Oh, boy. What a hand this is. Mary, I'm warning you. Any card you throw, I can use. Go ahead, throw one. It's your turn first. Oh, yes. Here. Gin. <laughs> Jack! Jack, it wasn't my fault. Stop pulling my hair. Oh, I'm sorry, Mary. I didn't mean to get so excited. Well, that's enough gin rummy for me. What do I owe you? Five dollars and 20 cents. All right, I'll pay you tomorrow. Oh, Jack, you always say that. Why don't you pay up as soon as you lose? Because it's so inconvenient. I don't care. Take off your shoe and pay me. <laughs> All right, I'll pay you. I'll pay you. Turn around. Turn around? Just for going to go you take your shoe off? The fives are pinned to my underwear. <laughs> Here's your money. Thanks. You're welcome. You know, Mary, you're the luckiest Hey, Jackson, you got a bottle opener? Here you are, Phil. Thanks. <laughs> As I was saying, Mary, you're the luckiest person I've ever seen. Oh, I'm not lucky. You just don't know how to play gin rummy. Oh, I don't, eh? Well, I'll tell you what. You won $5 from me. I'll play you one more hand, double or nothing. All right. And we'll use this other deck. Now, shuffle them and shuffle them good. Okay. Show you. Uh, if they're shuffled enough, Mr. Benny, I'll deal. Wait till I cut them, sister. There, go ahead and deal. Just a minute. You don't have to roll up your sleeves. I trust you. <laughs> go ahead and deal. This time, Mary, I'll show you that you can't be lucky all the time. There's a law of averages, you know. Okay, pick up your cards. I got them, I got them. Well, this is more like it. Now, let's see. This card I don't need. Here. I don't want that one. I'll pick. Here, I'll give you this one. Oh, boy, right in the middle. I go down with six. Well, you caught me this time. I'm stuck with 24 points. Good, good. Where's the pencil? Put your cards down first. There. Now, let's see. Six from 24. That gives me... Oh, wait a minute. I can put the seven and eight on your heart run. Where? Oh, yes. Ah, oh, but that still leaves me with nine. You're darn right. Six from nine gives me... Oh, a... wait a minute. I can play my deuce on your three deuces. Where, 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 where? Right there. Oh, yeah, but you're still stuck with seven, and six from seven gives me... Uh, hello, kids. Oh, hey, Don, I just clipped Mary. Oh, stop bragging. I only got stuck with this seven of clubs. Seven of clubs? 
Well, Mary, why don't you put it on his four, five, six? Oh, yes. What? That leaves me with nothing. You lose. <laughs> Don. Don. Yes, Jack? Every year, you're voted as radio's best announcer, aren't you? Well, yes, Jack. Well, it shouldn't be hard for you to get another job. <laughs> now, get out of here. Oh, don't be such a sore loser. He's right. What time do we get to Los Angeles, Don? 8.45 tomorrow morning. Gosh, another night on the train. Hey, Jackson, you got any extra glasses in there? <laughs> yes, there are three of them over there. Thanks. <laughs> Say, Jack, I'm a little hungry. How about sandwiches? All right, Mary, I'll go to the diner and get some. I'll be back in a few minutes. Okay. Let's see, the diner's down this way. Gee, imagine them charging 95 cents for a sandwich. Do you hear that whistle down the line? I reckon that it's engine number 99. All those prices that you have to pay on the Atchison, Topeka, and the sand. <laughs> See, the diner must I beg be... your pardon, mister. Yeah? Could you tell me which way the engine is? The engine? Oh, yes, you're going in the wrong direction. It's the other way. Why do you want to know? I'm the engineer. <laughs> I don't mind. The engineer? Hey! Yeah, I hope he finds it before we reach Los Angeles. It'll be the first time I ever went to Catalina by rail. <laughs> now, let's see. The diner should be in this next car. Well, from what you told me, Rochester, I don't see how Mr. Bennett got along without you. Uh-oh. There's Rochester in the washroom talking to one of the porters. I gotta listen to this. Uh, anything else you wanna know, Roy? Yeah, besides writing Mr. Bennett's radio show, what else you do for him? Well, I'm his publicity agent, manager, and last but not least, his personal advisor. Oh, well, are you gonna let Mr. Bennett go on television? Well, we'll be happy to discuss any order offers. Oh, why did you say that so loud? I want people to hear him. We ain't had any yet. <laughs> hmm. Yes, sir, Mr. Benny won't do a thing without my approval. Rochester, another thing I've been wanting to ask you. Uh, how old is Mr. Benny? 39. 39? Well, I thought that was just a joke on the radio. Well, in the vernacular, we people in show business, that is known as a running gag. Well, uh, how long has it been running? Two years longer than the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. Rochester! Uh-oh! Is that Mr. Benny? It ain't your host! Rochester, I don't like you discussing my private affairs. Yes, sir. And will you please go to the diner and get some ham sandwiches for me and Miss Livingston? Boss, would you mind making that cheese? Why? I just told Roy I was your personal advisor. <laughs> All right, all right. Just get the sandwiches. Yes. And take that sign off your back. I'm not considering television till next year. I think he'd know better than to talk about me in front of strangers. Let's see. Oh, here's Mary's compartment. Gee, it took you a long time. Where are the sandwiches? I sent Rochester. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. Hey, kid, I haven't seen you all day. What have you been doing? Oh, I was in the club car looking out the window, counting the telephone poles. I wanted to see if my mother was right. What? Well, she says there are 119,726 poles between Kansas City and Albuquerque. Well, how would your mother know? She dug the holes for them. <laughs> Why do I ask them? Why do I ask them? 
Say, Jack, would you like to play a little more gin rummy till the sandwiches get here? Well, all right, Mary. Move over, Don. Keep your mouth shut. Okay. <laughs> oh, by the way, Jack, I haven't seen your riders since we left New York. Are they on this train? No, they took another one. Well, why don't you have them come with us? Are you ashamed of them? Ashamed of them? Of course not. My four riders are very famous. Three of them have their pictures in the brown derby, and the other has his in the post office. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Dead or alive, Sam. Yeah. Mendel's got a private room. Uh, say, this is a pretty good hand you dealt me. Hey, Mr. Benny, why don't you put those two kings together? Be quiet. You're giving my whole hand away. And anyway, they're queens. Gee, if she'd just throw you the seven of spades, you could go right down. Dennis! <laughs> Let's see. I'll give you this one, Mary. The eight of hearts. I'll take it. And here's the three of diamonds. I don't need it. I'll pick. Oh, that's a beaut. Now, let's see. What'll I give you? Give her the end card. No, no, no. I'll give her this one. Here. I'll take it. Hmm. Here, Jack. I'll give you this one. I don't need it. I'll pick. Now, let's see. Give her the end card. No, you saw what she picked. I'll give her this one. Oh, no, 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 not that card. Give her the end card. <laughs> well, maybe you're right. She did pick up those other two. Here, Mary. Gin. <laughs> Dennis. I guess I've only got one show now. Look, Ed, why don't you go back to the club car and count telephone poles? No, I gotta practice my song for Sunday's broadcast, so I'll see you later. Uh, what song gonna do this Sunday, Dennis? The Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes from Walt Disney's new picture, Cinderella. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, sing it. Do anything. Just leave me play. Oh. Deal, Mary. If you keep 
Dennis, that was wonderful. Thank you, Mary. It was great, kid, but when you do it on the show... Now, listen, Dennis, sing it a little faster because we're kind of tight for time. Okay. Now, go ahead, Mary. It's, it's your draw. Hey, Jackson. <laughs> what? You got a couple aspirins? <laughs> So you finally got yourself a little headache, eh? Well, don't expect any sympathy from me, Phil. Jen. No, thanks, Mary. I've had all that. Phil! (laughs) Jen sometimes can mean something else. Mary. Look, this hand doesn't count because I wasn't watching. Now deal the cards again. Come in. Telegram for Mr. Harris. Oh, I'll take it, Porter. Here, this for you. Mmm, a dollar. Thank you, Mr. Harris. Well, go ahead and read it, Phil. What does it say in the dollar? In the telegram. <laughs> go ahead, Phil, read it. Let's see. Um... Oh, no. Well, who's it from, Phil? The boys in my band. What does it say? Hurry home, we're in again. (laughs) Well, look, I better send them a wire, tell them when I'm going to arrive. See you later, huh? Well, come on, Jack. Let's finish our game of gin. No, no, man. I'm going out to look for Rochester and see what's taking them so long with the sandwiches. Okay, and hurry back. I'm starved. Okay, Mary. Gee, this trip has been exciting. Saw the Mississippi, the Grand Canyon, the Dollar Tip. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well. Oh, there's that cute little baby. Do you mind if I hold him, madam? No, no, not at all. Hello, baby. He's so cute. And his eyes are the same color as mine. Lake Louise blue. (laughs) How old is he, lady? 39. (laughs) What? Weeks. Oh, oh. (laughs) You know, lady, yesterday when you were in the diner, I came through here and I played with him. Didn't I, baby? Uh-huh. Jin! <laughs> well, he's luckier than Mary. Here, take him back, lady. You have a lovely child. Thank you. You'll find $5 he won pinned to his diaper. <laughs> hey, what a little doll that baby is. Excuse me. Oh, oh, it's you, Jack. I was just going up to the diner. Oh. Well, Don, I sent Rochester up there for some sandwiches. If you see him, hurry him up, will you? All right, I will. Oh, Don, before you go, there's something I got to tell you. The most amazing thing happened a little while ago. What is it, Jack? What happened? Well, I was in Mary's compartment with Phil when the porter brought him a telegram. Yes? And Phil gave him a dollar tip. Well, what about it? What about it? Don, he gave him a dollar tip. A dollar just for bringing him a telegram. 
He didn't press his suit or anything. <laughs> well, Jack, there's nothing unusual about that. You mean that you... Certainly, certainly, all the time. Gosh. Jack, in these times when you're in a hotel or on a train and people do a personal service for you, it's customary to give them a dollar tip. It is? Yes, and you might as well get used to it. I will not. <laughs> All right, Don, you go on to the diner. I'll see you later. Oh, uh, wait a minute, Jack. I just remembered something. I've, I've got a surprise for you. A surprise? Yes, step right over here to compartment H. Gee, I wonder what the... Right here? Yeah, yeah, open the door. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> well, the Sportsman Quartet. Hello, fellas. What are they doing on the train? Oh, they got on at Albuquerque. They've been there all week on a personal appearance. Well, Don, I'm glad the boys are with us and that they'll be on the show Sunday. Are they happy that they're going home? You know, back to Los Angeles? Ooh, are they? <laughs> Listen to this, Jack. <laughs> we love those dear hearts and gentle people Who live in our hometown Though it may shower most any hour They read Luella from Friday to Monday, in fact, the whole week through. We may have fog, smog, or sun on Sunday. It makes no difference, no one's blue. We feel so welcome at Hollywood and Vine. Love to eat inside that derby they call brown. The Brea Tar Pits, the Farmer's Market, they're all a part of our Something in the air that you can't find anywhere When the smudge pot smudge you never feel the heat There's a Chinese picture show That's it, Grumman runs, you know Where they have cement for stars to put their feet We love those dear, we love those dear hearts and lucky people Who smoke in our hometown They smoke those luckies Because a lucky will never ever let you down they are so free and so easy on the draw. Take a tip from one who knows and you will see. There ain't a rough puff, it's fine tobacco, so light an LSMFT. It's always LSMFT. Yes, LSMFT. Fellas, that was great and it'll be wonderful on the show Well, Don, I think I'll go back and play a little more gin with Mary And then have the berth made up and go to sleep I'm going to turn in early, too Okay, Don, see you later I'll soon be back home in California And I'll pay my income tax when I get there And if I have to, I'll play my fiddle In the middle of old Pershing Square Well, about another hour of gin and I'll go to bed Boy, this berth feels good. It's nice to be able to stretch out. Yeah, but stop stretching over to my side, will you, Jack? I'm sorry, Don. 
I don't know why you insist on traveling like this. These berths are only built for one. Don, you know as well as I do, it's hard to get accommodations on the Super Chief. We're lucky we're in here. I suppose so. Anyway, I'm too cramped to argue. All right, then drop it. You don't have to get huffy about it, you know. Look, I'm not getting huffy. Hey, fellas, be quiet. How do you expect me to sleep here between you two? I'm sorry, Dennis. Good night, Don. There he goes, Don. Every night it's the same thing, snoring and mumbling. Ah, don't worry, kid. We'll be home tomorrow. I'd like to punch him right in the nose. <laughs> ah, shut up! can't go to sleep. Well, Dennis, why don't you try counting sheep? Counting sheep? Yeah. Well, okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. No, that's a sheepdog. <laughs> Seven, eight, nine, ten. Jim. Here we are, home at last. Uh, can I brush you off, Miss Livingston? Yes, please. Well, thank you. Uh, can I brush you off, Mr. Day? Yes, please. Thank you. Brush you off, Mr. Wilson? Please. Don, now, if you'll turn around, he can brush your back. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, brush you off, Mr. Benny? Yes, please. Thank you, Porter. Here. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't have change for that dollar, Mr. Benny. I don't want change. Keep it. This dollar is for you. Come on, Mary. I love those dear hearts and gentle people. Gee, it's good to be home, isn't it, Jack? Yeah. Let's go over here to the cab stand. Extra, extra, get your paper here. Extra, read all about it. Gee, I knew it would be in the papers, but how did they get it so soon? Come on, Mary, everybody's staring at me. Train leaving on track five for Anaheim, Azusa, and Cucamonga. Oh, boy, even he sounds good. Ladies and gentlemen, the American Heart Association has set a goal of $6 million to be used for research, for education, and for community service. 
Heart disease is our greatest challenge because it takes more lives than any other illness and causes tremendous disability. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, won't you please help support the 1950 heart campaign? Send your contributions to Jack Benny, Box 500, New York City. Rochester, here we are at home. The house looks good, doesn't it? Sure does, boss. I'm going upstairs, take a shower, a shave, and get cleaned up. Okay, boss, and while you're doing that, I'll unpack your bags. No, no, Rochester, don't touch those bags. Why not? As soon as I get cleaned up, I gotta rush back to the railroad station. For what? I gotta catch a train. I'm going back to Washington for the White House Photographer's Ball. But, boss, that don't make sense. If you're going right back to Washington, why'd you come all the way home from New York? I told you to take a shower. There's a water shortage there. <laughs> Have a cab here in 15 minutes. Good night, Claudette. Come on. Be sure to send your contributions to the 1950 Heart Campaign to Jack Benny, Box 500, New York City. Dennis Day and a day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy show, which follows immediately. <laughs> this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs> Told you it was funny. And that was the Jack Benny show. And that one was originally broadcast on uh, February 19th in 1950. Jack is returning to Los Angeles on the train. So well written. You know, if you ever get to listen to some of the Spurdvac shows that play on Yesterday USA, uh, John and Larry Gassman and Walden Hughes play these shows that are recordings of, of uh, luncheons that honored uh, particular people from old-time radio back. Most of these came in the 70s and, and the 80s, some in the 90s. And they were really outstanding, but they had a number of, of the Benny writers, George Balzer and, and different ones. And they would give you a lot of backstory on, uh, on the show and the writing of the show and Benny's personality and whatnot. And they're just classic. They really are good. You know, we were talking about um, frauds and con games and whatnot. Did you ever hear this story? And I, I don't know if it's spurious or not. George, George Burns and Jack Benny were great friends in real life. And one day they were having a lunch at the Brown Derby. And as they were eating, you know, George said, you know, Jack, we spend a lot of money in this restaurant. And Jack said, yeah, yep, we do. And he says, you know what else, Jack? He says, we bring them a lot of business. A lot of people come in here because they know we eat in here. And Jack said, yeah, that's true. So they were eating for a while, and George was thinking, and he says, you know, Jack, he says, they ought to treat us to a, to a free lunch every now and then. And Jack said, well, I don't think that's going to happen. So they were eating, and George was thinking about it. He said, tell you what, Jack, when the waiter comes, He'll put the check in the middle of the table. You say, I'll take the check, George. It's my turn. And I'll say, no, Jack, it's my turn. I'll pay the check today. And, and we'll get in a fight over it. And the waiter will be standing there watching. And, and, and what we'll do is we'll finally get so mad at each other over it, we'll just say, we're never coming in here again. 
I'll say, Jack, I'm never coming into the Brown Derby again with you. And you agree that, that you'll never do it either. And, and they'll get so afraid that, that we won't come in here anymore and, and they'll lose so many sales, they'll, they'll treat us to lunch. And Jack looks at him and he kind of smiles and he says, you know, that's a good idea, let's, let's do that. So they continued with their lunch, and visited a few people as they came over. Finally, it was at the, at the end of the meal and the waiter came over and set the check down right in the middle of the table. And George kind of nodded at Jack and Jack said, here, George, I'll take that. And George said, thank you, Jack. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but that's funny. <laughs> And I, from everything I've heard about Jack Benny in real life, I bet he would have just bent over in stitches laughing at that. I hope that's a true story, but it's a, it's, it's a good one. And, of course, we'll have more episodes of the Jack Benny Show in the weeks ahead. And if you want to go into boomerboulevard.com, you can find a lot of episodes of the Benny Show that we've played over the years.
right, well, you know what that music means. That means it's time for us to travel back to the Old West. 1874, we are in Dodge City, Kansas, walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon. Along the way, we're going to bump into Kitty and Doc and Chester and the whole gang on this really dramatic episode of Gunsmoke that was written by John Meston. Particularly good roles in here are are, uh, performances, I should say, by Virginia Christine and Jeanette Nolan, who's always one of my favorites. Along the way, you'll also hear uh, Vic Perrin and, uh, let's see, John Daner's in this. Anyway, it's it's a tremendous uh, episode, and it deals with a very serious issue. It's a domestic issue. Rather than me try to describe it, why don't we just listen to it? So here we go. This one was originally broadcast on CBS on May the 13th, 1956. This is Gunsmoke, and the name is Cows and Cribs. And here it comes. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. How's the cattle business? Yeah, they shipped a thousand head out in the Santa Fe this morning. Guess I can afford to buy you a drink? Oh, well, thanks, Bowers, but I hear Doc Adams has been looking all over for me. I better go find him. Well, he's in here a while ago talking to Kitty. Huh? Oh, here she comes. Maybe she knows where he went. Matt? Oh, Kitty. Hello, Mr. Bowers. Hello, Kitty. Doc had to leave, Matt. They called him out to the Smith place on an emergency. But he asked me to give you a message. Oh? You know, Ed Soff and his wife... Well, sure, I know. Yeah, they got a little piece of land right on the south edge of my ranch. They're not doing very good, though. Well, they sure aren't, according to Doc. He was out there last night, and he'd planned to go back for him today. To go back for him? They have to be brought into town, Matt. They've got spotted fever, both of them. Hey, they got a little baby out there, too. Well, that's why Doc says somebody's got to fetch all three of them in the Dodge where they can be taken care of. Well, I'll find a wagon and go after them tomorrow. 
We couldn't get them back tonight anyway. You want some help, Marshal? I got a pack of cowboys who ain't earning their feed. Well, thanks, Bars, but Chester and I can manage. You might need some help. Oh, what do you mean? Ed Thorpe. Sick as he may be, he'll get a gun and fight before he lets you carry him off that place. I know him. Ah, then he can stay there, but I'm going to bring his wife and child in. All right, but you keep an eye on him. He can be a bad one. Thorpe's place, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I know, Chester, but I want to meet these people. They must be new. Come on. How do you know they're new? You ain't been out this way in over a year. Well, all the more reason to meet them. Now, let's walk around back. I thought I saw somebody there. <laughs> nothing but a sod hut and blow dirt. You must be living on nothing. Well, it doesn't look like it, Chester. Huh? Why, he's butchering a calf. Now, where'd he get that? Well, he sure didn't raise it on those weeds his woman's trying to hoe. Hello. What are you men doing here? I'm Marshal Dillon from Dodge. Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. How you do? Something wrong, Marshal? No. Except your hat's going to get all bloody where you laid it on this calf. Leave it be. Here. You got sunstroke without a hat. All right. So I was trying to cover up Emmett Bower's brain. We're starving out here, Marshal. I had to kill that calf. You ain't going to arrest my husband, are you, Marshal? No, ma'am. Not unless Emmett Bowers complains. Well, Joe had to do it, Marshal. We, we just can't go on without something to eat. Look where I've been hoeing over there. I couldn't plant enough for hardly anything to come up. We can't afford no more seed. Our, our credits run out and dodge. Well, that ground doesn't even look like it's been plowed. i done the best I could. It ain't easy. No, ma'am. Not for a woman. Uh, we're on our way over to Ed Thorpe's. I guess you know that they got spotted fever. I was there this morning. Ed Thorpe's dead, died in the night, I guess. She didn't tell me that, Joe. You mean you left Miss Thorpe and the baby alone over there? I ain't gonna chance catching no fever. But, Joe, the baby. My woman's always worrying about babies. It's only because she can't have none, I guess. She's like one of them there dry gourds. Don't, Joe. You're putting shame on me. Uh, Chester. Yes, sir? Let's get out of here. Oh, uh, Miss Nader. Yes, Marshal? Next time you're in Dodge, uh, come see me, huh? I'll get you some seed to plant. Mr. Dillon, I thought we wouldn't never make dodge tonight. How's the baby, Chester? Well, it's asleep anyway. I guess I've been holding it right, huh? Well, just like a mother. Oh, I am not. <laughs> oh, there's Doc waiting for us. Oh, there. Huh. You just sit tight a minute, Chester. We'll help you with the baby. I hope it don't wake up or anything. Matt, where are Ed Thorpe and his wife? 
Well, Ed died before we got there, Doc. Ms. Thorpe's lying down in the wagon back there. We uh, covered her up good. She's been asleep most of the way. Oh, okay. Mrs. Thorpe. She's still asleep. Give me a hand up, Matt. Yeah. Oh, Mrs. Thorpe? Oh. Oh, my. What's the matter, Doc? She's not asleep, Matt. She's dead. No. Died on the way in, I guess. Now we got a baby to take care of. You know, Doc, I, I think she knew she was going to die. Why? Just before we left her place, she told me that if anything happened to her, the baby was to be put in Ma Smalley's care. And Ma Smalley was to have complete charge over him. Well, what she says goes. Ma's a widow. She's had kids herself. That was a good choice. Yeah. But she's too old to raise them herself, man. Well, we'll worry about that later, Doc. Let's get busy. Have you been, Miss Nagler? Pretty good, Marshal. Marshal, Mrs. Nagler wants to adopt the Thorpe baby. Oh? Well, Miss Thorpe left the baby in your charge, Ma. It's all up to you. Well, I've had him over a week, Marshal, and I'm going to keep him a while longer so he'll be near Doc just in case. But Mrs. Nagler here seems like a mighty fine woman to me. And I'd, I'd let her take that baby, only I'm worried about one thing. I, I told her, Marshal, and... The, the truth, and she's afraid maybe Joe and I can't make a go of it out there. You remember what you said when you was leaving that day? I said to come see me, I'd help you get some seed to plant. Well, now, that's all I need. I, I get a little corn up there. I'm, I might even raise a few hogs. I work awful hard, Marshal. I promise I will. She gets started. She can have the baby, Marshal. Uh, Miss Nadler, why don't you come by my office before you leave town? I'm going to the store here and have a talk with Mr. Jonas now. Oh, Marshal, I do thank you. Come on back to the house, Mrs. Miller. All right. You can look at me. Oh, hello, Marshal. Hello, Jonas. Well, what can I sell you today? Well, I came by to see you about Miss Nadler. You, you know her, don't you? Yeah, of course I do. Joe Nadler's out back in the stockroom right now. Oh, he is? Yeah. Hey, Nadler, come in here a minute. He's buying himself a new pair of boots, Marshal. Uh, I thought their credit had run out. Oh, well, Nadler's doing better now. He started bringing meat into Delmonico's and a couple other eating places and paid up part of his bill already, ain't you, Nadler? I don't know as I like you talking about my private affairs, Jonas. Oh, no harm. It's only Marshal Dillon. Come on, Nadler. Those are good-looking boots. They ought to be. Them's the best I stock. Them's $20 boots. $20, huh? I'd buy a whole wagon load of seed, neighbor. You telling me how to spend my money? Does your wife know you've been doing better lately? Family matters ain't no concern of the law. Yours are. And if it wasn't for your wife, I wouldn't bother just warning you. But because of her, I'm telling you to take off those boots and buy some seed and whatever else you need to grow corn with. Now you look here, Marshal. You Marshall. shut up! 
I'm giving you a chance, Maitler, and three days from now, I'm riding out to see what you've done with it. It's up to you whether or not you'll be riding back with me. Today's Thursday, Mr. Dillon. Ain't we riding out the natives? Ah, uh, we can wait another day, Chester. You know what? I don't think you want to go at all. Yeah, you're right. I don't. Hello, Marshal. Bars. Chester. Oh, Mr. Bars. I was just up at Delmonico's, Marshal, having myself a feed. Oh, good. How was it? It was fine till I went out back and got a talking with the cook. Oh. Marshal, I reckon any man's got a right to complain when he goes to a restaurant and finds himself eating his own beef. I know about that, Bars. You do? And why ain't you done nothing about it? Oh, because of Ms. Nadler, I guess. Look, Marshal, I'm a rich man. I don't mind a nester slaughtering one of my calves when he's starving. And nobody's going to start selling my beef. I'll kill him. He keeps that up. All right, I'll handle it, Bowers. I admire that woman, too, Marshal, but letting him get by with rustling ain't going to help her. Uh, by the way, Ma Smalley brought some pies down to the kitchen while I was there. She's waiting outside here. She wants to talk to you. Get you right out. Thanks, Jimmy. Hello, Ma. You riding out to Needler's, Marshal? I am. Then you tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I think she's a good woman, but I can't let that baby go into the home of a cow thief. Now, and it'll break her heart, Mom. Son, I got a trust put in me. All right, I'll tell her. Hello, Miss Nadler. Oh, Marshal. Hello, Chester. Hi, ma'am. What brings you out here, Marshal? Uh, is your husband home? No, he's been gone since morning. Oh. Uh, Miss Nadler, do you know that he's been slaughtering him at Bowers' beef? Oh. Mr. Bowers complained about it. About that calf? Oh, it's more than that one calf, Miss Nadler. He's been selling meat around Dodge lately. So that's what he had in the wagon. I know you had nothing to do with it, Miss Nagler, but... Uh, I hate to tell you this, but... Ma Smalley isn't going to let you have the baby. Oh. Well, she's... She's right, Marshal. It, it wouldn't be fitting. Mr. Dillon, look. Huh? Over yonder. That's Emmett Bars. I'll be back, Miss Nagler. I'm going to go talk to him. Them other two must be riders of his, huh? Yeah. I thought I might find you here, Marshal. There's something wrong, Bowers. One of my men's been murdered. We found him out yonder about five miles. He'd been left for dead, but he talked a little. Well, what happened? He's gone now, Marshal, so you'll have to take our word for what he told us. All right. You run across Joe Nadler, slaughtering another steer. 
Nailer shot him? That's right. Anything else? Only the Nailer got on his horse and headed for Dodge. I guess he figures he'll get caught and he might as well get drunk one more time. He'll get caught. I promise you that, Bowers. Finally found him, Mr. Dillon. He's in there getting drunk at the bar. Well, it's taken us long enough. Everybody in town must know I'm after him by now. There, see him? Yeah, I see him. Stop there, Marshal. Don't you come no closer. Put that gun away, Naylor. I saw Chester. I knew you'd be in here next. Why, Nidler? You don't fool me. You know all about it. You admit killing that rider? I knew when I shot him I couldn't get by with it. My horse's tracks was all over the place. Well, don't make it any worse than it is. I told you not to come no closer. Put your gun on the bar, Nidler. You watch what I'm going to do with it. No, Nadler, don't. Why not? Hit you, didn't I? Now I'm going to kill you. You hurt bad, Mr. Dillon? He hit me in the arm, Chester, but I'll be all right. You killed him? Yeah. Do something with him, will you? I'm going over to Doc's. Yes, sir, I will. Alvin... Marshal Dillon? Huh? Oh, Ma Smalley. Why, you've been hurt. Oh, it's not bad, Ma. What about Joe Nadler? He's dead. I figured he would be. I heard you was looking for him. That's why I followed you down here. Look, my arm's bleeding some, Ma. I better get over to Doc. Well, you hear me out first, Marshal. Yeah, of course, Ma. Go ahead. You'll be the one to tell Mrs. Nadler about him, won't you? I guess so. Take a wagon with you, Marshal. What? A woman can't live out there alone. Now, I got an extra room at my house if she'll help with the work. Well, what about the baby? It'll be her baby, Marshal. And tell her I won't interfere none, neither. Yeah, I sure will, Ma. I'll tell her all that. I'll go out first thing in the morning. Well, you won't go nowhere. You just stand here gabbing all night. That arm's bleeding, Marshal. You ought to go get it fixed, you hear? <laughs> yeah, you're right, Ma. <laughs> but then you pretty off on the hire. You know, the buffalo hunters killed off the entire High Plains herd in a few short years, leaving the Indians to starve. And next week... This hunger sets off an Indian massacre. And that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, John Daner, Jeanette Nolan, Virginia Christine, and Frank Cady. 
Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Help today and hope tomorrow is the slogan of the 7th Annual United Cerebral Palsy Drive. Support United Cerebral Palsy. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Wasn't that a good episode? It was originally broadcast on May the 13th in 1956 on CBS. Cows and Cribs was the name of that episode of Gunsmoke. And I particularly liked the uh, performance, even though it was a relatively limited performance by Jeanette Nolan. I love that tear she got in her voice and that sincere sound. Then you tell her, I'm sorry. Tell her I think she's a good woman, but I can't let that baby go into the home of a cow thief. Son, I got a trust put in me. They they really did deal with adult themes. Well, Chester is giving me the old high sign and is telling me that it is time to pick up all of our shows and to carry them back into the vault. So let's do that right now. Friends, our very first show of 2018. Where does the time go? Hard to imagine, hard to imagine. I'm actually recording this on uh, New Year's Eve, so you are listening to it in 2018. Hope it's a good year for you. I hope you uh, work hard and get the things that you want. I wish you happiness and uh, prosperity. I also... Thank you very much, Chester and I both do, for all of the um, devotion you've shown to this show, for the allegiance that you've shown to us, for listening to us and sending us notes and encouraging us. It means so much to us. So from my family to yours, I just want to say thank you, thank you very, very much. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.